How to Play, Episode 21, Coliseum. Hello once again and welcome to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, and this episode was recorded on September 26th, 2010. We're coming to you from the How to Play studios in Buffalo, New York. This is a podcast about learning and teaching games. In this podcast, I'm going to give you a full explanation of how to play the game Coliseum, as if I was sitting across the table from you and we're about to play the game together. This podcast is intended to be used in learning how to play the game by yourself or in a group or to serve as a model on how to explain the rules of this game or others. Our website is www.howtoplaypodcast.com, and if you'd like to discuss the show, join up at our guild at BoardGameGeek. We've got a great forum there for discussing this episode or any of the episodes, or to bring up any topic you'd like about teaching or learning games. You can contact me there at the guild, or you can send me an email at my email address, howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. Before we get into it, I also want to really recommend that you check out our How to Play Teaching Guides. I put a lot of work in putting these teaching guides together. And what these teaching guides are is they're an outline, basically, of the script of what you're going to hear on the show. I put a lot of time into reorganizing those scripts into useful and attractive teaching guide there. So it'd be a nice resource. You can just throw it in some of your game boxes. You know, if you don't get a chance to play the game for another year, then you can have that teaching guide right there to assist you in teaching the game. So I will have this one for Coliseum available probably in a few days. It takes a while for those files to get approved. But for your downloading pleasure, I have all sorts of great teaching guides all done already. Uh, I got Magic Realm, Lahav, Kalis, Medici, Shadows Over Camelot, Citadels, and more are coming. 1830 is in the process of being approved. All of those are available from the How to Play Geek list, which is available from the Guild. If you haven't taken a look at those, I encourage you to go give those a shot. If you like the show, if you like the teaching guides, help me out. There are costs associated with the show, and I really appreciate anything you could donate. Uh, We have a PayPal donation there at the website. Just go to the websites in the upper left corner. If you make a donation, I have these great t-shirts I'd be happy to send to you. So consider donating to the show today. Now, let's get to today's game. Coliseum. Coliseum was designed by Wolfgang Kramer and Marcus Lubke, and I recommend playing it with four to five players, though the box says you can play it with three. I love this game, and I heartily recommend it for anyone's collection. I've talked on the show before about thematic integration. I think this game has that in spades. The major mechanical component that uses that thematic integration is these asset tiles. You're essentially building up these different assets, and the assets are gladiators and comedians and lions and horses and ships. You have to generate a certain combinations of these tiles in order to put on a show. And that is just a cool idea. It is so fun to look at these and and imagine these events that are going on in your Colosseum. And the number one factor that makes this such a great game is the outstanding production of this game. I open up this game and I just I just love it. It's chock full of all these beautiful components. You have these six little figurines representing nobles that are just very well crafted. All of the art on the board and on the tiles is just amazing. Everything is incredibly functional from the player aids to the insert. Oh, this is the nirvana of inserts. It even comes with a guide to tell you how to fill the insert. Oh, oh, happy day. There's a reason for each spot and everything fits exactly where it's supposed to go. Isn't that fantastic? But more importantly, the game is fun. It's so much fun. Every time I break this out, I just have a blast. Everybody seems to like this game. You bring it out, everybody has a good time. This game for me has been a guaranteed hit. Whenever I bring it out, we always laugh and have a lot of fun. While at the same time, there's enough strategy in the game to keep it interesting and allow you to outplay your opponents or try to improve your play from game to game. Now, it's not incredibly deep. It's not K-less. It doesn't have a learning curve of 100 games. But I've played this game probably 20 times, and each time I brought it out, I've always enjoyed it. And just looking at this game and going through this script, it really makes me want to get this one to the table again. So if you don't own this game, pick it up. Let's talk about the complexity rating for Colosseum. 
Colosseum and my rating scale is a blue circle game. This game has quite a bit of rules, but on the other hand, the rules are pretty easy to understand. There's five distinct phases, and each of the phases makes perfect sense. All the rules are pretty much intuitive, and the theme is engaging enough to capture and interest the attention of most people. So I'd say you can play this with gamers and non-gamers alike, and I've had success playing it with people who aren't really gamers per se. It has a good length, it lasts about an hour and a half, and it's pretty easy for a player to dive right in in their first game and have a great time. There's been some discussion there at the Guild about games to play with friends and family. I think this is a fantastic one. You've got a good strategic game that's still fun and lighthearted enough that you don't have to have people who need to invest a whole ton of thought and effort into learning the game. So it's a good game to have on your shelf for those reasons. Alright, let's get into the explanation. The format for the show is we have an introductory hook, I give you the meat of the rules, and then at the end I have a hamster to give you a little bit of starting strategy. Then I have my footnotes and musings section. In the musings today, I talked about how this is a fun game to play with family. Well, some situations occur when you do that. I'll talk about outside game relationships being brought into games. That'll be my topic in the musings. I'll also do a quick comparison from this game to Cromer's earlier game, which Coliseum has a lot of similarities to, and that is Princes of Florence. So I'll talk about that near the end of the episode, so stay tuned. And now is the time for my standard disclaimer that the ideal situation is to have the components and the game in front of you so you can refer to it during the explanation. If not, you may want to go online and look at some of the components of the game, including the game board, the event programs, and the player aids. If you don't have any of those things, say you're driving in your car to Oklahoma or something like that, you'll just have to look at those things later and hopefully you can bring it all together. But for now, let's get to the hook. Part 1. The Hook. What the game is about. Welcome to Colosseum. In this game, you play the role of a Roman impresario, seeking to put on the greatest spectacle the world has ever seen. This game will take place over five turns, and each turn you're going to stage an event trying to draw the most possible spectators. Each turn you're going to spend your money to make an investment in your Colosseum. Then you'll bid on one of five sets of resource tiles to help you perform the events. Each turn your Colosseum will grow and your events will become more exciting. The first few years you'll be performing events to build up your income and to be able to afford greater events to make more investments and acquire more resources to put on even larger events. At the end of the fifth turn of the game, players will probably be able to stage their biggest event yet. And at the end of the game, the player who has put on the one event that has drawn the most spectators will be hailed for all time as the winner of the game. Part 2. The Meat. How to play the game. Alright, so the key to this game is to run events that draw lots of spectators. So before we get to the actual phases of the turn, I'm going to talk about these events and how they draw spectators. So let's talk about that. How to stage a colossal Roman event. So let's look at an event program. At the beginning of the game, you're going to start with two of these little small green events that just require a few asset tiles to pull off. So the very basic idea is that you're trying to put on this event and you need those three or four or five tiles. Later in the game, they could be 10 or 12 tiles to stage this event. For example, let's look at that event program number one tile. In the upper left, it says number one. That, that just identifies which program it is. In the upper right is the name, Tribute to Munis. In the center are the tiles required. For this particular program, we need two gladiators and a flower pot. I love to imagine this, what's going on in these different events. I mean, this one, we could, we could have two great warriors battling in front of a shrubbery, or we could have maybe one gladiator professing his love for another gladiator and giving him a basket of flowers. You know, you can just extrapolate these combinations of tiles in any way your crazed imagination sees fit. Anyways, we're trying to put on the tribute to Munis with the two gladiators and the flower pot. I think technically in the game they're called decorations, but I like to call them flower pots or just plain pot. Now, that, that might be a different event. Regardless, in the lower left, there is a number with a crown of laurels around it. That crown of laurels symbols means how many spectators will come to that event. 
So if you successfully get all three of those tiles and perform tribute to Munis, you will have seven spectators come to this event. You'll also notice two little green boxes. Minus one, five. Minus two, three. That means you can still put on this event if you're missing one tile and five spectators will show up. I guess you've got one gladiator dueling a flower pot. Or you could still put it on with two tiles missing and still have three people show up. I guess at this point you just have a flower pot and people are staring at the flower pot watching the flowers grow. Well, regardless, people will still show up. It's good to know that even if you don't have all of the tiles, you still can perform the event. So those are the event programs in a nutshell. These tiles that you're collecting, there's 12 different types, and they all are very thematically interesting. You could see how they would be part of an event. You might get gladiators, or ships, or musicians, or horses, or lions, or torches, or scenery. And so I think this was just a great way of incorporating that theme. Now the idea is to perform bigger and bigger events, and you're going to be able to acquire bigger events throughout the game. Look at your player aid. It has the phases of the game. We're going to ignore that for now. We're going to flip it over and we're going to look at the program guide. It lists all the advanced programs available in the game. We have the medium-sized events, which are in blue, from 11 to 20. And we have the largest events, which are in red, from numbers 21 to 30. Let's look at this program guide and see all of the important information that's on this card because it's going to be very important for you to look at this program guide throughout the game and try to determine which of these programs you want to shoot for. So if we look at it, the first column is just the program number identifier. So the first program on the list is program number 11. The next column has a money symbol available for it. In order to put on this program, you need to buy the rights to this program. So that has the cost of it. Program number 11 costs 13 money. The next column has the laurels on it. This tells you the total number of possible spectators for this event if you have all the tiles. So for program number 11, you'd get 17 spectators for having all the tiles. The next column shows you the necessary size of your Colosseum. Right now you've got a little baby Colosseum, and you can only put on the starter green events. At some point you're going to expand your Colosseum. If you expand it once, you can then put on the blue events. That's events number 11 through 20. Later in the game, you can expand it a second time, but that's as big as it gets. And having two expansions allows you to put on the biggest events in the game. Those are events number 21 through 30, and you can see that's indicated in that column there. And then if we look across those rows, so for program number 11, if we just look across the rows, it tells us what we need for that event. We've got three gladiators, three ships, and two flower pots. Clearly, these gladiators are planting some sort of aquatic plant life. Thrilling. On the bottom row, you'll see some numbers, 20, 11, 12, 12. Those numbers correlate to the number of tiles of those type in the game. So there are 20 gladiators, 11 ships, and so on. So you can see how rare the different tiles are. And so you can see how this will be important throughout the game because you'll be trying to obtain tiles and as you're making decisions about which tiles you want to obtain, you want to look at this chart and you're trying to shoot for the combinations of tiles that are listed on this chart. So the goal is, is to get as many spectators to attend your event as possible. What does that do for you? Say I put on an event that 10 spectators attend. Well, I get paid based on how many people went to my event. So if I get 10 people to show up at my event, I get 10 money, which is going to fuel me to help me grow for the next round. Each turn I'm going to be able to get more tiles and make more investments and make my Coliseum better and have more resources. So the first few rounds I'm just trying to build up. Now how the scoring works in this game might be a little different than the scoring you're used to in some other games. If in round 1 I get 10 spectators, I mark my score as 10. If in round two, I get 15 spectators to attend my event, my score is now 15. Remember, the goal is to have the one event that draws the most spectators. So the score isn't cumulative. I'm not going to add the number of spectators each time. I'm only going to move my score marker to the highest score I have achieved. So usually, but not always, your score is the amount of spectators you draw in that fifth and final round, because then you have the most resources. And whoever has put on the best event by then will win the game. So the the events you're running in the first few rounds are just to help you build up resources, building up to that best event you can possibly do. And you're building up for that one great event, which usually will be in the last round. Make sense? Good. Now let's get to how do we get more spectators to attend our events? Well, we already talked about the most important part, and that is having all of the required tiles on the event program. 
So if I need five tiles, it's very important that I, I get all five of those. Sometimes I, I might only get four and that's okay, I'll just go with it. But I want to get as many of those as I can. But that's not the only part of the scoring. There are a lot of bonuses you can get to add to that number. I'll go over these in more detail later, but some of the other bonuses include having run other events, buying these things called season tickets, which increases your spectators, and there are these little dudes called nobles, which travel around the board and could land in your Colosseum, which will give you more spectators. And finally, if you have the most of a specific kind of tile, say you have the most gladiators, you get what's called the star performer tile. You have a super gladiator that everybody wants to see, and so that increases how many spectators you get. I'll go over these bonuses in more detail a little later in the explanation, but it's good to know that it's not just getting those tiles. There's lots of other ways to get extra bonuses to try to create the event that has the most spectators. Now you have a firm understanding of the goals of the game. Let's get more specifically into how the game plays, and let's look at the five phases of each turn. The five phases of a game turn. So there's five turns in the game and each turn has five steps. And all of us will go through those five steps together. First, we're gonna buy something, and then everybody will buy something, and then we'll go on to step two, until we get through all five steps of the turn, and then we'll go to the second turn, and we'll do all those things five times. So as I said, the first phase is investing. You're gonna buy something to make your Colosseum better. There are four choices. Let's look at those. The first choice is to get a new event program. So you're looking at all of those different programs on the back of your player aid. And if you want to run one of those, you have to buy the rights to it. So this is when you would do that. If you wanted to buy a larger event to run, you need to buy it during this investment step. The cost of these event programs range from 13 money all the way up to 40 money. The second option is to expand your arena. You start with a Colosseum that's two semicircles, and you have two expansions that you can buy for it, and those are just rectangles. So you'll, you'll buy one of those rectangles, expand your semicircle, and make it sort of oval-shaped. And then later in the game, you'll get another one of those expansions. The cost of an expansion is 10 money, and you need to do this because you need one to do the medium events, and you need two of them to do the largest events. Your third option is to buy a season ticket. These cost 10 money, and what they do is every time you run an event, you get to add 5 to the amount of spectators for that event. And this can be a very handy thing, especially if you manage to get multiples of them. And your fourth option is the Emperor's Loge. This costs 5 money, and normally you only get one dice to move these important people that are moving around the board and, and try to get them in your Colosseum. If you have the Emperor's Loge, you get to roll two dice and either get to move two guys or one guy extra far. And so this is what you're going to do when we first start the game. You're going to either buy a new program, you're going to expand your arena, get a season ticket, which is plus five for every event you run the rest of the game, or get this Loge, which lets you roll two dice when we move these guys around. And for your first turn, it's very likely that you'll probably either get the season ticket or the loge, because you're probably not quite sure what you're going to do for that next event program. So that's phase one, buy something. Phase two, acquire event asset tokens. I'm not sure I really like the term event asset tokens. These are resource tiles. They have the gladiators or the horses or whatnot on them. And in the game, they're grouped in sets of three. There's always five groups of three tiles for you to choose from. Whoever's the starting player is going to pick one of these group of three tiles that they like and place a bid on them. The minimum starting bid is eight money, but he can bid more if he wants. And the bid will just go around and around until someone wins the bid with the highest amount of money. During this auction step, you can only win one set of tiles. So once you win one of those sets of three tiles, you're out of the auction for that turn and won't get to bid until the following turn. Usually for the first turn, these bids don't get too high. Someone might bid 9 or 10 or 11. But later on in the game, when we get some of these special tokens, which I'll talk about, the bidding for these can get more interesting. So there are five groups of three tiles there. If the starting player wins the auction, then you refill back up to five lots. If anyone else wins the auction, you don't refill. So now that start player will only have four lots to choose from. In this way, the person who's starting the bid knows that those are the only groups of tiles that will ever be available for them. Now some of the other players later down the line might want to wait around and see if any other lots that are better show up. But just remember that whoever starts the bid, if they win it, then you refill. If they do not win it, 
you do not refill. When that initiating player wins a bid and you refill, then the person to the left becomes the initiating player. And the same rule applies to them. If they win the auction, then you would refill. If not, you would not. But that's phase two. Everyone will probably end up with a group of three tiles. And they'll get to add this to the five or six that they got to start the game. Next, phase three, trading event asset tokens. So this is pretty straightforward. You're taking those tiles that you got and you have two starting programs and now you probably have eight or nine tiles and you're trying to match up the tiles that you have with the tiles on the programs that you have. And you also will be looking at that event program master to be looking towards the future and thinking about, all right, what event do I want to maybe run on turn three? Or maybe what event am I going to try to run on turn five? And sort of make those trades trying to build up to those bigger events. Now the start player gets to begin the trading phase and everyone can only trade with the start player. And then the person clockwise, he or she will get to initiate trades and they'll make trades however they want to until everyone's had a chance to initiate trades. In this way, you'll notice that three-way trades aren't really allowed. You sort of have to trade with people as their turn to initiate the trade comes up. Well, at least this is how the trading phase is written in the rule book. Alternatively, I've found that I really prefer free-for-all trading. After everybody has won their tiles from the auction and everybody's set, give them a chance to think about what they really want to go for, just say, trading's open, and let people trade however their heart desires. Now this makes things much more intense, as you have to really negotiate that trade and keep an eye out on what the other players are doing so that you get that tile that you want before someone else sneaks it and trades it from that person which I think adds a good deal of excitement from the game. The one criticism I have of playing it according to the rules is if you're trying to trade a lion with someone else and I want that lion, according to the rules, I'm just supposed to sit there and sit on my hands. It's not really clear on the rule book whether I can say, well, if you don't trade with him, then, then I'm interested in that lion. And then it gets kind of murky about, can that other player talk to me about what I'm going to offer him for that lion before he accepts the deal with the other player or not? I think it just makes it cleaner and more exciting if you allow for free-for-all trading. I don't, I don't put any prohibition on three-way trades if people want to set that up and, and orchestrate that. I, I think that adds to all part of the fun. It just depends on your preference and how you want to play it. If you don't have people with a real boisterous personality, people who are a little more introverted, they may prefer the take-your-turn-and-trade-in-turn order. But the other huge advantage of doing this free-for-all trading is it speeds up this phase greatly. Instead of each person taking a turn to trade and having to trade in a set fashion, all the trades are sort of happening at once. I can be trading with this guy over there and Lenny and Susie can be trading across the table and then we're all done in just a matter of minutes. So you'll have to decide what suits your preference and will suit the people at your table and agree on a way to play the game before you get started. But that's phase three, trading event asset tokens. Now, phase four, producing events. So each player in turn order is going to get to run their event. So the starting player is going to get to start, and they'll put on their show. But before they do that, they get an opportunity to move the nobles on the board. These six nobles, we have three senators, the yellow guys, two consuls, the blue guys, and one emperor, the red guy. And you want to get these guys inside your Colosseum, or conversely, out of your opponent's Colosseums, because they offer bonuses if they're in your Colosseum. So you're going to roll one die. The die has Roman numerals on it, two, three, four, five, six, and there's a one to three spot, which allows you to choose whether you want to move a guy one, two, or three spots. Of course, if you bought that Emperor's Loge, you're going to get to roll two dice, and you can either move two of those nobles, or you can move one noble two times. So you roll that die and you'll get to move the person of your choice clockwise that number of spaces. So you want to get guys in your Colosseum or move guys past your opponent's Colosseums. But also there are these spots with medals indicated on them on the track. And the other thing you can do with them is get the person to land on a medal space. And if they land on an Emperor's Medal space, you get to take an Emperor's Medal as your reward. And these have many different functions. I'll talk about these more in a few minutes. So that's it. Roll a die and decide where to put one of those six gentlemen. The three yellow ones give a three spectator bonus. The two blue ones give a five spectator bonus. And the one emperor gives a seven spectator bonus. So consider that as you decide which one to move where. 
Then you run your event. You'll have two to start with. You're going to choose one, probably the one you have the most tiles of. And you say, I'm going to run the tribute to Munis. And the first step is counting the initial value. And that's in the laurels in the lower left-hand corner. You see if you have all the tiles and see what base value that gives you. So say I had all the requirements, the two gladiators and the flower pot. That starts with a base value of seven spectators. And then there's a bunch of different bonuses that you could get. They're all listed there on your player aid. So what I like to do is say, all right, start with seven and just go down that list and see which of those bonuses you get. The bonuses include how many other events you've run. That's a five spectator bonus. Each season ticket you have gives you a five spectator bonus. Having those star performers for having the most of a certain kind of tile is a four spectator bonus for each one that you have. And of course, having those red, blue, and yellow guys gives you seven, five, and three spectators respectively. And there's a couple more things we're going to talk about in just a minute. So you just go down the list and add them up. Maybe I had tribute to Munis and it was worth seven. And I had one season ticket plus five is 12. And I got one of those yellow guys in my Coliseum plus three is 15. So I had 15 spectators at my event. The next thing that happens is you get paid for that. I get 15 money for having 15 spectators. Then we adjust my position on the scoreboard. My highest score that I have achieved so far is 15. So I take my victory point marker and mark it along the outside track and put it at 15. In the following rounds, say I scored 19, then I move my victory point marker to 19. I wouldn't add 19. If in the following round my, my spectator total was 12, I would just stay at 15 because I didn't score higher. And then the last thing you do is you would flip that event over because it's got a plus five marker on the back. So if you ran another event, you would get plus five towards each following event, which is why it's nice to run different events. Now, just because I flip a tile over does not mean I can't run that one again. If I have to, because I didn't buy another event program and I've ran all mine, I could run Tribute to Munis again, but I wouldn't get that five point bonus. And that's pretty much it. I'm going to roll the die, move one of the dudes on the board, say, I'm going to run this event, count up my score, move myself on the score, and take money. Then the next person will go through all those steps again, roll the die, run their event, and so on, until everybody has had a chance to run their event. Can you choose to not run an event? Well, there's really not any reason you would want to do that. You can always at least run something, and you want to do that so that you get at least some money for the following round. So let's move on to phase five, closing ceremonies. This is just some cleanup steps to sort of end out the round. There's a bonus for the leader and a little catch-up mechanism for the person the farthest behind. The leader on the scoreboard, whoever scored the most, is going to get a podium, and they're going to get to put that in their Coliseum. Podium, it's a little token that goes on the Coliseum. It says plus three on it because as a reward for each future event, they're going to get to add three spectators. The next thing that happens is you have to consume some of your resources, those event asset tokens. Let's say I did tribute to Munis. I used two gladiators and a flower pot. I have to give up one of those tiles. I have to give up one of the tiles that I used. Say I had some horses too. I did not use a horse this turn, so I can't get rid of a horse. I have to choose to either get rid of a gladiator or a flower pot. And ideally, this is all done sort of secretly and simultaneously because it's no fair really peeking at what other players are getting rid of. So sort of, you know, cover your tiles and grab one with your hand and put it in your fist so that everybody sort of does it at the same time. So each player is losing a tile. Those get thrown back in the game box. Now, whoever's the furthest behind gets to take one asset token from the current leader. So say someone only had 10 spectators and another person had 19, they had the most. The person with 10 would look at the leader's tiles and say, ooh, I really like your gladiator. I'm going to take one of your gladiators. And so the leader then would have to hand off that tile. And that effectively is the end of the turn. We have the game turn counter, and it's numbered 1 through 5. We move that down to turn 2. We move the start player token to the person on the left of the previous start player, and you're going to repeat this whole process five times. We're going to buy something like a program or a season ticket or an expansion. Then we're going to have our auction, so every player will get, hopefully, a set of three more tiles. 
Then we'll trade with each other. Then each player will roll the dice and put on an event. Then we'll hand out the podiums, have to burn a tile, and the other person can steal a tile. We'll do that whole thing five times. And after the fifth turn, the person who put on the single event with the most spectators wins the game. But don't start that hamster music yet, because we've got just a few more details to talk about. Medals, special tiles, and star performers. Okay, so when we move these dudes around the track, you can land on the medal space if you're lucky, and you'll get one of these cool medals. And they have all sorts of icons on them of the four different things that you can do with them. And you can use their ability pretty much any time in the game that you want to. So you can get one of these during the roll a dice and move the nobles. If you have a Loge, you might be able to even get two in a single turn. What do they do? They just give you several nice little bonuses. Right, the first one is you can add three spectators to one event. Usually this effect is used at the end of the game. Someone stores up three or four of them and just cashes them all in for three points each. Of course, once you use this, it gets put back in the game box and it's gone. Next effect you can do is to move a noble one to three spaces in either direction. You don't have to move it clockwise like you do when you roll the dice. This is used, of course, to get nobles into your Colosseum or out of other players' Colosseums. You can't earn medals by burning a medal. You can only earn medals through moving the guy with a dice roll. Next, you could cash it in for six money at any time. And finally, if you flip these guys over, it's got this crane icon on it. That means that instead of just buying one thing at the beginning of the turn, like one season ticket, if you turn in two of those, you could buy two things. You could buy two season tickets, or a season ticket and an arena expansion, which is a handy effect. So the medals are nice little bonuses. So in the beginning of the game, the tiles are set up to be starter tiles. But as you draw tiles out of the bag, special tiles can come up. There's three special tiles I need to tell you about. One is a lightning bolt on it. This is simply a joker. You can use this for any kind of tile that you want. Also, if you're the player ahead who gets a tile stolen from them, they're not allowed to choose the Joker as the tile that they want to steal. Next, there's a tile with a metal icon on it. And this is simple. If you win this auction, you simply get one of those Emperor's Medals that we just talked about. The tile goes out of the game, put it back in the box, and take a medal for your reward. And the last special tile has one of those cranes on it, a slash, and a metal. This gives you two options. You can either use this single tile to make two purchases in the first phase, the investment phase. Again, like you could buy two season tickets. Or you can also trade this in for a medal, which helps to make it not useless if you get it on the last turn of the game. If you can, this is most valuable as getting that double buy in the first phase. And when this is part of a lot of three tiles, it can lead to some more expensive auctions. And lastly, some rules about these star performers. The first person to get three of a certain tile is going to get the star performer token. For example, if I got three horses, then I would get to take the star performer horse token. Then if another player were to get more than me, say someone else came in and got four, then I would have to hand over that star performer horse token to them. Tying isn't good enough. They have to get more than you. This is where deciding how you want to do trading becomes an issue. Because if you allow free-for-all trading, it might become vicious to get after that person who's got that extra horse that they don't need. If you have one of those jokers, they don't count towards your total to get star performers. There aren't star performers for all of the tiles. The good rule of thumb is there's only star performers for the living things. There's no star performer for the flower pots or the cages or the torches or the columns. I like to give them fun names like the, the horse, I always call him Seabiscuit, and the gladiator, of course, you call that guy Spartacus. The lion, the lion could only be Mufasa, of course, and then you've got Gandalf, the white wizard. I don't have good names for the other three. Maybe some of you guys can help me out with that. What do these star performers do? As long as you hold them, if you use that kind of tile in an event, you get plus four spectators for that event. So if I did my tribute to Munis and I had Spartacus, the gladiator star performer, I get to add four to my total. Of course, if I did tribute to Munis and I had the lion star performer, I do not get the bonus because tribute to Munis doesn't have lions. Maybe that's in Tribute to Munis 2, I'm not sure. If in your starting tiles you happen to have three of a certain kind of tile, you may get to start the game with one of these. That's, that's very fortunate. And if you manage to get two or three and use them on the same event at the end of the game, that can be quite a big bonus. So aim for getting control of these star performers. But that'll about do it. That's the game. You're trying to put on these events. 
In the first phase, you're going to buy something. Then we're going to auction for these sets of three. We're going to trade our tiles. We're going to produce our events. We're going to roll the dice, move the guy around, decide which event we're going to do, count everything up, and then wrap it all up. Person who's ahead gets a podium, steal. Do that all five times. And the fifth one, the fifth turn, will probably be the deciding round. Once in a while, someone will put on a really good one in the fourth round. But usually you're looking to see what people do in the fifth round. And whoever puts on the best event that totals up the highest number is the winner of the game. Part 3. The Hamster. How to win the game. So because of the way the scoring works, this game is all about building towards that end, trying to build up to that great event at the end of the fifth turn. That means usually what you're shooting to do is to build the largest coliseum to buy one of those programs for one of those red events and try to get all of the tiles for that event and as many of the star performers as you can for that event. Now if you don't get any extra buys, keep in mind you're only going to get five buys for the whole game. You're probably going to want two of the buys for expansions and you're going to need one of those buys for this big program. What you do with the other two is out in the open. Whether you want to get a couple more event programs, whether you want to just get season tickets, that's up to you. You need to keep looking forward in this game, looking at the tiles you have and, and the tiles your opponents have, and that key of all the programs in the game. And by the end of the second turn, you should have a pretty good idea of which of those larger events that you're going to go for. Also pay attention to the available lots that are up for auction in the future turn. Generally, those medals, you want to save those up for your last turn. And though it's nice to get those noble bonuses in the second or third turn, sometimes it's good to work to try to set up those nobles to get them to land in your Colosseum on that last turn. Remember that money means virtually nothing at the end of the game. It's only a tiebreaker. So don't be afraid to burn all that money in that last turn. Now, just because you're building for that last turn doesn't mean that the events you run in the first few turns don't matter. They do, because if you get too broke, you're going to be in trouble. Remember that you're going to want at least enough money for an investment, which is probably going to be at least 10 bucks, and you're going to want to buy a set of tiles, which you need to have at least 8 bucks to do. If you don't have the money for that, it's very sad. So remember that at the beginning of a turn, you're going to want to have at least 18 bucks. The next thing to keep in mind is there's a big impact there for the leader and the person behind at the end of each round. Getting podiums is nice, and stealing tiles is nice. And each of those can really affect you in the game. So pay attention to what you think other players are going to score, because getting in that leader position or getting in that last position can be nice as they both give you bonuses. One thing a lot of new players don't realize is that it's going to take two buys for you to get to the next level of event. For example, if you want to do that medium event, you're going to spend one turn to get the expansion and one turn to get the program. So you need to plan ahead. The next thing I need to stress to you is you need to be very careful in your trading. This is not a game where you can just sort of trade things willy-nilly and figure, ah, it'll come back to me, or what's one extra lion going to do for him? There's two very important impacts you're affecting with your trades. If you trade something, even if it does nothing for you, it could give that opponent a star performer, which is an extra four points, which can be huge. So pay attention before you make a trade. What is that going to do for them? Even if it doesn't give them a star performer, it might let them complete an event, which will give them a lot more victory points. You really can only make trades that are going to help you in this game. And you need to think about and pay attention to how good that trade is going to be for your opponent. The last piece of advice I have for you in this game is do what the other players aren't doing. Yes, yes, the how to play Swiss army knife of game strategy is very important in this game in particular. One factor is you need to be getting involved in tiles that other players aren't really into. If no one is getting lions, you might want to be the lion guy. If no one is getting chips, you might want to get the ships. If you're fighting with two or three other players for the same tiles, you're probably going to lose this game. And definitely, if you and your opponent are gunning for the same program and he buys it before you, you will cry. So pay attention to those things and try to go for other programs and tiles that the other players don't seem to be as interested in. Well, that's all I've got for you. It's time to jump in and explore Colosseum. Have fun.
Part 4, Footnotes and Musings. All right, footnotes. I have just a couple footnotes here for you. Remember that the nobles can only move in the clockwise direction unless you use the metals. And when you use the metals, they can go in either direction. A commonly forgotten rule is that when you use the metal to move a noble, you can't earn a metal back by doing that. When you trade, normally players are just trading tiles for tiles. But if you need to sweeten the deal, you can include money in your trades. You can say, all right, I'll trade you this tile for that tile, and I'll give you three bucks. That is allowed by the rules. Another thing we discovered in this game is if you get in an auction and you have metals, but you have a limited amount of money, it's possible to bid more than you actually have cash on hand if you have those metals, because you have credit available. If you need to use those metals, then you could cash them in if you win. But if you don't win, then you don't have to cash them in. So that can give you some flexibility there. You can outbid your cash on hand, and you don't have to turn in those metals unless you need them. And a final vegetable here is the tiebreaker. The tiebreaker, of course, is how much cash you have left. So if there's a tiebreaker at the end of the game, the player with the most money is the winner. Now this also comes into play at the end of each round. It's very common that players will have the same score. In order to be considered the leader, the tiebreaker is the richest player and to see who is the farthest behind or who gets to steal tile at the end of the round. You look for the person among those players tied with the least amount of money. That's it. So we have time for a bit of musings here. And when I muse, I think back about my memories of this game. I remember this game very fondly because this is a game that my wife and I spent a lot of time playing together. In fact, we were taught the game when it had just come out in Origins, and I wasn't expecting much, but after learning the game, we just both fell in love with it. And we purchased the game there at Origins that year. So this game became a game that we introduced to some family and friends. And I just have great memories. Every time we break it out, we've always had a good time. In particular, I have to tell you this one story of when we were playing this game, my wife and I, my neighbors, and my wife's sister. Because this game has grown to legendary status. We already talked about the importance of trading and making sure that both players are getting something out of the deal. Well, we were we were intensely into a game of this this one night, and it was pretty well contested. All, all of us had played the game before, and, and we were all doing pretty well, and we were, we were getting down to the crunch time. It was the fifth round, and we were in that tense trading phase in the, in the last phase of the game. And, and we, were, we were trading, and trading was starting to wind down as everyone pretty much had what they needed. My wife's sister, Kelly, was just looking for lions. She, she kept asking, you know, I may have lions, I may want to trade lions, what do you want for that lion? And as things tend to do in this game, people were just starting to get quieter, and no one really seemed to be in, that interested in trading. And I, I was about to say, all right, let's, uh, let's, let's run the events. And my wife says, you need lions? Uh, Kelly, I'll, I'll trade you a lion. And Kelly says, what do you want? And my wife, Kristen, says, oh, I don't, I don't know. Uh, how about a torch? I'll take a torch. Oh, boy. So, you know, I smelled something fishy. So I look at my wife's board, and my wife has everything she needs for her program. She doesn't need a torch. There's no torch on her board. And so I called her out on it. I said, hey, this is not cool. This is not the way we play games. You can't just give her a lion. And my wife acts all innocent, like, what What? what do you mean? I, I got a torch. I wanted, to, I wanted to trade her a torch. You know, after a while, she sort of fessed up that she was giving her sister these lions. And we, we played out the game, and lo and behold, Kelly was the winner. She used the lion, and lion gave her the last tile she needed to have all the tiles for her last event, and won the game. And henceforth, from here on out, in the Sturm household, making a move for no other reason but to be nice, because you like the person in a game, is known as lions. As in, hey, you can't make that trade, that's totally lions. Or, you're way overbidding for that painting, that is so lions. And from there on out, everybody knows what lions means. And any sort of lions behavior is greatly frowned upon in our household. I bet many of you have been in similar situations, especially if you play games with people who are close to you and how that impacts your gameplay. You know, whether you play with your wife or you play with your kids or, or you play with your father. In certain instances, I suppose we're all guilty of lions. But I think, you know, it, it of course totally depends on the situation that you're in. 
if you're playing a game with your kid and you want to, you know, make a few lines moves to make it closer or to keep it interesting, you know, you know, that's that's one thing. If you're playing a four player game with two spouses and one spouse makes a trade to help the other spouse win the four player game, uh, that kind of hurts. And I know we've all observed this at one point or another. And to be honest, in some circumstances, Lions is probably the best course of action. It's just hard to see it severely impact games like it did on that one evening. So I'd be happy to hear your stories of any similar Lions stories that have come from your game nights. Well, let's talk a bit about the father of Colosseum. The father of Colosseum is the game Princes of Florence. Princes of Florence shares one of the designers of the game, and that's Cromer, Wolfgang Cromer. And the game, if you, if you play it, will feel very familiar to Colosseum. In the game, instead of putting on an event, you are creating a work of art. For example, you might have a poet, and the poet needs all sorts of things to create his poem. He wants, for example, a lake, he might want a theater, and some other things that you acquire in the game. And each of these things that you acquire for the poet ups the score and you end up with a final score for each of these works of art that you do. Now, the interesting thing is, in Colosseum, pretty much all of your early events are pretty much just for money. I mean, you do get a score for it, but basically, your score is that big event that you do at the end of the game. In Princes of Florence, the difference is that each time you do an event, you get a score for that event, but you have to decide what to do with that value. You can either cash it in for money, or you can cash it in for points, or you can take a combination of the two. That definitely adds an important choice in the game. The game is similar to Colosseum in that the way that you acquire the different resources and the things that you need. There is an initial phase where players each get an opportunity to auction for several items that help them with their artists, just like you auction for a lot of the event tiles in Colosseum. And then there's a second phase of the game in Princes where players have two actions much like the investment phase, in that they could buy a building, or they could get another artist, or so on. They have to decide what to do with those two actions. So they're, they're buying stuff, and then they're also auctioning for stuff to put on these works of art to get the highest possible score. So which of these two games is better? Well, there's a reason that you're listening to How to Play Colosseum and not How to Play Princes of Florence. Because personally, I like Colosseum better. The things I prefer about Colosseum the production is nicer. It's got the really cool bits. It's got great artwork. Also, just the thematic tie-in just feels like it works more. Getting these collections of these different tiles and imagining how they go forth to this event, you know, as I've described before, you can just sort of picture in your mind these events that are occurring in these coliseums. I just think that that's a wonderful thing, and trading for these event tiles is so much fun, and moving the nobles around on the board. There's so many interesting elements in this game, and it just looks so darn beautiful. But probably most importantly is every time I've played Coliseum, it's always gone over well. Players have had a good time. They've enjoyed it. They've been challenged. Even people who aren't quite as familiar with games. And every time I've brought out Princes of Florence, it's been sort of a yawner. People have been scratching their heads, dully staring at the board, and just more bored. Princes of Florence definitely does feel more dry. Now, given that, Princes of Florence has definitely got more strategy to the game. But this game is also much more mathy. There's, as I said, there's an auction element in the game. And the things that are being auctioned for are of wildly different values. Now, most things you might get for three or $400 in the auction, for example. There's one particular item called the Jester, which good players have determined that on the first turn, the value of the Jester is $1,200, which is much different than some of the other elements. Now, because it's an auction, it's not really broken per se, but then you have to sort of explain that, oh, you really should pay $1,200 for that, and it, it doesn't make intuitive sense to be bidding on these items of, of just much different values. Where in Colosseum, you're just bidding on those five lots of tiles. And their values might be a little bit different, but their values are a little bit more obvious for people who don't want to play the game 30 times. Everybody can probably figure out that a wild tile is worth more than a regular tile. And Princes of Florence is just so mathy. When you get to those last two turns and you have four actions left, it's really about calculating out things and figuring out what is your optimal move. And Colosseum just 
continues to flow and it's it's done in an hour and a half and everybody has a good time and princes of florence people are just you know scratching their heads they've got wrinkled foreheads it, it's definitely a different experience i enjoy it but not as much as Coliseum. We talked about how they can convert the value of their work into either victory points or money, and the calculation for doing that is not very intuitive because you get a score for what you do, and you can either take it in 100 times that in money, or you can divide it by two and take the points, and so that, that mathiness there is a little ugly. So Princes is, is a good strategic game. If you like a little bit of mathiness, if you like a little bit more of a less random game, and probably, honestly, a game you could dig into a few more times, Princes of Florence is a good choice. But I say overall, for your average Joe, Coliseum is a great game. It's a game you're going to get a lot of plays out of. You're going to be proud of owning it because it's just a beautiful game. And the thing about Coliseum is every time I see it on my game shelf, I think, man, i got to play Coliseum again sometime soon. I can't quite say the same for my friend Princes of Florence. Well, that about wraps things up for episode number 21, Coliseum. Thanks, everybody, for continuing to listen. I hope you'll go check out those teaching guides. You can get a teaching guide for Coliseum to keep in your Coliseum game box if you're an owner of that game. And I'd love to hear what you thought about the show. I'll be back with another great game in a few short weeks for episode number 22. What's it going to be? Oh, right now I have no idea. I'd be happy to hear your suggestions for the next game for episode 22 there at the Guild. But for now, let me just say thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play Podcast. One, two, three, four. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play Podcast. How to Play is written, recorded, edited, produced, promoted, and financed by Ryan Sturm. How to Play is a one-man, independent podcast not affiliated with any game vendor or game company. If you like How to Play podcast, I count on you to support it. You can help out by joining and participating in the guild, donating financially to the show, writing reviews or rating the show on iTunes, help talk up the show in your game group or on the forums at BoardGameGeek, and even just thumb announcements of new episodes. We have no contests, no gimmicks, no advertisements, no plugs to game websites or companies. All of the show's content is free of all buys, save for one, my own. And that is due to your own continuing support. Please consider supporting the show in some way today. I love to hear feedback from you, and I can be contacted through our discussion forum on the Guild at BoardGameGeek. Or I can be emailed at howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. This podcast home on the web is www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Thanks again, everybody, and until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games.